This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Gold Star Mom, Janet Henscheid. Janet is a tireless advocate for Gold Star families and military families, and it is such a treat to have her here today. Janet, welcome. Thanks, Tina. I appreciate you wanting to hear our story and how much we love America. I have seen Janet around several different events in the Utah area, and she creates a beautiful tribute to her son when she goes to these events. And I'm sure that we will talk about that. Let's get started. Can you share a little bit of your background, Janet? Did you have any military background in your family before Landon joined the military? Well, first of all, I grew up in Idaho on a dairy farm. My dad is a World War II, was a World War II veteran. And I don't really remember him talking to us a lot about that time in the military. In fact, he preferred not to talk about it. But somehow we grew up very patriotic. And my dad wanted to be a dairy farmer. That was his dream. I don't know why. But in order to support that dream, he worked for um, the Fort Hall Indian Reservation. So he worked there um, just outside of Blackfoot on the reservation for 28 years. And that kind of supported his dairy farm dream. So I um, grew up there in Idaho and then moved down to Utah to go to school. And I got married and we lived here in Utah and we lived in Wyoming and we lived in Arizona for a little while. But we, my husband and I, Don, are just super patriotic people. And we always love taking the kids to the Freedom Festival in Provo and we loved the parades. and. We're both the kind of people that when the flag goes by in a parade or you see it on TV at the football games on TV or the basketball games when they sing the national anthem, Don and I are both the people that are crying. Um, so I don't know really where that came from for either one of us, but we were very patriotic and so we raised our kids that way, just taking them out and about um, the parades. And we were really, um, we just really tried to help them know that they needed to appreciate what they had in this country. You know, Landon, first of all, I guess I'll tell you, I have Rihanna, she's my oldest daughter, and then comes Cody, and my oldest son, and then comes Landon, he's the middle kid, and then comes Hayden, the sweet, strong, grumpy, cute little baby boy of the family. Um, and they all loved military, right? When they're little, all of them, they just played military. But Landon always wanted to be a sniper from the time he was super tiny. Like he just, that's what he wanted to be. He wanted to dress up like a soldier every single Halloween. He was either a skeleton or soldier or sometimes a skeleton soldier. That just carried on throughout him. I mean, when he was like, I don't know, maybe he was like 10. We, we had a little hobby farm. And so we had gunny sack bags that we used to get grain in and things. And he took those 
gunny sack bags and make ghillie suits out of them for him. And at that time when um, they had, it was paintballing, that was the big craze at the time. So he'd hang out with all of his friends and the Boy Scouts and the young men and they'd go paintballing and he would just lay in the bushes in his ghillie suit forever until he could get the perfect shot. I felt like he was going to go on that path. Although, you know, as a mom and they're just kids, you don't know. There was no war going on. We just lived this happy little life in pristine, beautiful Alpine with the beautiful mountains. Everything was great, right? It was beautiful. It was perfect. Um, then 9-11 happens. And Rihanna was 17. Cody was 15. Landon was 12. And Hayden was 10. And that event, I had no idea how it would transform and change our family dynamic in the years to come. I just had no idea. So did it have um, a profound uh, impact on Landon, even at such a young age, when most teenage boys are yeah. probably oblivious to that sort of thing, especially at 12? Yeah. Yes, it did. Cody, especially. He was at the age at 15 where he, they're trying to figure out, okay, what college courses are you going to, or what classes are you going to take to help you, you know, decide what to do in college, where to go. And he was like back and forth on a few things. He's super, super smart. But when 9-11 happened, it's like uh, he, he knew what he was going to do. He's joining the military. And he's only 15. So at 17, it's 2003, right? We're, we're getting closer to um, more war happening in 2003. And he told me he was super serious about it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I just didn't know. But he started bringing his recruiter <laughs> to my work. And his recruiter was, um, had been a Marine and, or maybe he was army and then switched to Marines, but now he was a recruiter. So he's this, um, super high powered kid that could talk you into anything almost, but I was still really reluctant. Cody's 17, right? He's a junior in high school. Um, but at, still at that time as a mom, you don't know what it means. You don't know what it means. You just think, oh, cool, my kid wants to be in the military, and I'll be proud of him for doing that, and it'll be great. So after a lot of conversations, um, Don and I and the recruiter and Cody, we decided to um, sign, let him sign up. We had to sign for him at 17. That's scary. Um, it, Yeah, and if I would have known then what I know now, I might have changed my mind. I don't know, but he signed up. And we let him go to basic, basic training back at Fort Knox, Kentucky from uh, in the summer between his junior and senior years. So he went to basic training. All the kids then wore their pants around their hips, right? Their boxers are showing and they're just these, I don't know, these crazy roller, um, roller, not rollerblading, like uh, roller skates and long boards that kind of stuff, just fun kids. And when he came back from basic, he was so different. Like he wore his pants up around his waist with a belt. <laughs> he had all of his clothes nice and neat in the closet. And when he went to his senior year of high school, when all the kids were still being silly and maybe disrespectful to some substitute teachers or disrespectful to other kids um, in the hallway, he became 
the one that stood up for them. Um, Can I stop you for a second? I had no idea that you could go to basic before you even graduated high school. I think this is the first that I have heard that. Yeah, you have to have a parent's signature because you can't do it without. That's why he was so in, you know, trying to get that recruiter to, otherwise he would have just done it, right? Yeah, (laughs) I've heard of a lot of the people that I've spoken to, it's like they graduate and then they're gone like the same day or the week after, but I have not heard doing basic training even before you were a senior in high school. How did he find that as such a young kid? Well, he had started looking into everything. He had started looking into all the recruiters' offices. He was looking at all the different um, branches and who was going to give him the best bonus. He might have learned about the bonuses and the MOSs, which is, um, you know, the different jobs that you you um, sign up to do in the military. He might have learned more about that from his recruiter, but he had a really great recruiter. And because his recruiter had had so much military experience previously, I felt really comfortable in the things he was telling me. Um, so yeah, he did. And they came back very changed. Landon did the same thing. Signed up between, uh, he signed up at 17. So between his Junior and senior years, he served basic. And both of those boys were doing whatever they needed to do, switch whatever MOS needed to be switched, whichever uh, unit needed to be switched so they could get out fastest. Um, They just wanted to go. So Cody was in a transportation unit. He was attached to a unit going out of Fort Carson, Colorado. That's where he found a a place to go quickest. (laughs) So... um, when he left, it was 18 month deployments. So he served 18 months in Iraq and he was a security, he pulled security for the convoys. So at that time, IEDs were huge and big. It was like the big thing going on and security tried to make sure there were no bombs or things that looked odd in the road, make sure there were no people in the roads that looked um, suspicious, clearing them out so the convoys could come through. My understanding is that the enemy liked to stop the convoy with some sort of an explosion. Then when the uh, convoy was stopped and the soldiers were getting out of the convoy, they would start with small firearms shooting at the folks. So that's kind of what they were looking at at that point. How do you feel as a mom when Cody leaves? And this is your first experience with that. What are you feeling at that time? Yeah. Gosh, it was rough because I was the mom who was always in control, right? I joined the PTA so I could keep an eye on my kids and know what was going on in the community and in the school. So I'm I'm aware of everything going on. Um, I joined the other kinds of community events so I can be aware of what they're doing, um, my kids and other kids. You lose all control when they raise that right arm and they take the oath. And they sign their name away to the governor. You lose all control. Um, When he was in basic, this is a kind of funny story. Kind of moms might get this. So you get a packing list. He got a packing list, right? Of what he needed to pack for to go back to basic. It's huge. It's long. We're going everywhere, stressed out for days and days and days, trying to get every single thing on his list. So he gets back there and he's allowed one phone call once he gets there to call me and say he's there. Um, and everything is fine. But the one thing he did tell me is, mom, as soon as I got here, they confiscated everything we brought with us 
everything. They stuffed it all in a locker and then they took us back and reissued us everything. <laughs> so I'm like, are you kidding me? We did all that work and stressed out so much to get you everything on that packing list just to have it stuffed in a locker. <laughs> what was the yeah. purpose of that? <clears throat> oh, I don't know. <laughs> to stress them all was out. I don't know. <laughs> but it was just funny. Yeah, it was hard. It was hard giving up that control and not knowing what he was doing every single day. He couldn't receive any kind of mail or anything for like the first, I don't remember exactly how many weeks. We could write to him, but they they wouldn't give him the letters. So we didn't know what was going on with him. Um, but I do know, like I said, he came back a different kid. And um, while, he was, while he was in Iraq, he uh, was tasked to drive with a new driver, a new soldier who was um, going to be driving the semi-truck for the first time. So he was going to be like the truck commander and sit in the side seat while this, this young soldier took his first drive. And they were hauling a semi-load of water bottles. And um, they they hit an IED and they were, the explosion just blew them right up. So at that time, these soldiers were not allowed to carry weapons on their body. They had to be locked behind their seat. So Cody, the semi jackknifed, his driver couldn't get out of this burning truck. Cody hopped back in and I don't know, Cody just, he just attributes all of their, um, that whole day to angels, you know, just helping him. Got his battle buddy <laughs> out of the truck, got him laid down. You know, they're thinking, okay, now we're blown up. Now small fire's going to start coming. So he just laid down his body over the top of, of his, um, his soldier and just waited to get help, medevaced help in, um, got the convoy stopped. And um, that was scary. That was really scary. Um, he wasn't injured? We got injured. a call. It was the middle of the night for Don. He was injured, but not horribly. Okay. You know what? Neither one of those boys had burns. Wow. And they walked through fire. And that's the miracle of it. You know, they, neither one were burnt. Michael, Michael's leg was messed up because of the way the truck jack, jackknifed. Cody had some bumps and bruises from the explosion. Um, I think it did more damage to his brain, that combustion going in and smacking your head on top of the, the truck. But um, yeah, they got a meta back down and he called us later that night. They had taken him up to the hospital and he just said, told us what happened and that he was okay. And that's the call you never want to get, right? <laughs> that your kid's been injured and you can't get there. There's, you just want to go to them when you hear your child is hurt or they're going through some stressful situation. You just want to get there. And I couldn't do that. We couldn't do that. So after we spoke to him, Donna and I just both of us hit our knees, thanking the, you know, thanking God that he was safe, that Pace was safe that no one else was injured in that explosion. And um, a little ways down the road, Cody was awarded the Bronze Star with Valor for that. And he was actually going to be awarded that in Baghdad by uh, Jack Stoltz. He was the general of the Army Reserves at the time. So they helicoptered um, Cody and 
Michael Pace, the soldier, into Baghdad. But that's the day that they got Saddam. And so um, they couldn't, because of the security, they couldn't bring a general in. So anyway, long story short, Cody did a, a little interview with General Stoltz um, and just, you know, it was out on the AP. Um, Cody was coming home two months later for his two-week R&R. And what I didn't know then is the PTSD portion of what happens to these kids. He came home and we had planned, oh, the media was all over it. There was tons of media. We planned a huge homecoming. We were going to celebrate his birthday, which is November 11th. And we were going to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas, all of that in that two-week time period. And Cody just wanted to hang out with his friends at his friend's house. He didn't want to be at home. And I felt a little bit bad about it. But as I got to learn more and more about what, what soldiers go through and what happens in their brains and in their hearts, I'm like, I can't believe I did that to him. You know, I never would have done that to him in a million years if I would have known how difficult it would have been to put him through that much um, attention. Um, it was rough and I wish I would have known that's the one thing I, I regret is putting him through something I didn't realize was going to be so difficult. But um, he went back, served honorably. Um, and while he was in basic, no, Landon was in basic and Cody was in Iraq. So I like to go back and read through some of their letters that they wrote back and forth to each other. Really incredible how those two young men um, are in such dangerous situations, putting their life out there for someone else to tell them what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And they're just so courageous and brave and like, ask me, I'll do it. That kind of an attitude. And it was just really awesome to see that from, first of all, my boys, but in the many years since then, I have seen it in countless men and women who've served in the military, countless. They're just that, let me do it. Let me go. And even though they're hurt and injured and they're their injuries are sometimes very unseen. Cody's injuries are unseen. Um, they just still want to be the ones to go out and uh, and take the fight. Um, he served um, 10 years. so And some of that 10-year time was we were trying to get him medically retired. And boy, was that a fiasco. I mean, I can't even tell you. <laughs> How difficult that was. It took years to have that happen. And um, then Landon came along and of course he's going in. He's, his goal was to be special forces, right? He still wanted to be that sniper. Um, so he joined the civil affairs battalion, uh, USA K-Pak here in Pleasant Grove. And his recruiter was a totally different story. His recruiter was a professional recruiter never served any military time. Um, when he came to ask Landon what he wanted to do in the military, Landon was telling him, yeah, I want to be a sniper. I want to go special forces. And this recruiter said, well, I'd like to discourage you from doing that because um, special forces isn't conducive to having a family. And you do things like sit in a tree for days at a time with only 
food bars to eat, and you could sit in the desert for days at a time under, you know, bushes and not have anything to eat. He's just going on and on with all these scenarios, saying these are the reasons why you might not want to do special forces. And Landon, who was a kid of few words, just said to him, all the things that you just mentioned are all the things that made me smile inside. <laughs> so um, the recruiter helped him get on that path um, with special forces and or with civil affairs. So he deployed to Afghanistan in 2009 with civil affairs up in the mountains. He called himself a negotiator. I don't know what the army term is it is but their teams would go up in the mountains and talk to the tribal elders, trying to negotiate with them safety and security for the American forces from the bad guys. And in exchange, they would get whatever their village might need. You know, maybe they needed water, maybe they needed a school or... So he's the one who did that. And he did get one particular village elder to, who really wanted freedom for his kids. He wanted freedom for his grandkids. And when he agreed to work with the Americans, he and his family were killed. And Landon sketched a beautiful sketch of him and just put on, on that sketch to the Afghan elder who wanted freedom for his children and grandchildren just as we have freedom for our children and grandchildren in America. So that was his first deployment. Um, second deployment, he, he needed to go again, but they needed some combat medics to go. So he went to combat medic school into Afghanistan the second time around. Um, <clears throat> he was about, I don't know, six months or so into that deployment. And it was just a rough deployment. You know, I did not have the peace in my heart that I had on the other two, Cody's first deployment and Lana's first deployment. It was hard and it was scary, but somewhere in my heart, I felt some peace. This one, I was not feeling any kind of peace. I was worried. I couldn't be around him enough. I couldn't hug him enough. And I just didn't know what it was. You know, I, I just didn't feel good about this deployment. But, um, and about six months in, he, he, uh, texted me and said he had a, what they call the Haji phone. I don't even know what it's really called. And that might be totally politically incorrect and wrong, but that's what he called it. <laughs> and just said, mom, I'm getting medevaced out, um, but I'll be fine. Well, you don't just say to your mom, I'm getting medevaced out, but I'll be fine because that's not what you say without more information. Um, I tried texting him right back and we didn't hear anything. It took us several days before we even heard where he was. Um, we had friends that were serving in launch stool. So we called them and said, if you see anything or hear anything coming through there, let us know. Finally, I think it was the 21st of June. He was injured on the 16th. He got a hold of us from Walter Reed. He had borrowed someone's computer um, and got us on uh, Facebook Messenger. I think that's where it was, whatever the video um, server was at the time. And told us kind of what happened. 
And shortly after we talked to him, the military actually called us as well. So what we found out in the coming days is that he had been having a lot of back, back pain in his upper spine, but carrying all of the equipment uh, that he carried, just their normal military equipment, plus then he had all of his um, combat medic equipment. He just was chalking up that pain to carrying equipment, right? He wasn't even thinking much about it. They had been mortared several times in their little area where they were, way out in nowhere land. And um, one night they were called on a very specific mission. It was a night mission and he kind of went tumbling down the side of a mountain. And one of his teammates said that when they saw the look in his eyes, when he was trying to get up, they're like, they knew something was not right. Um, but he finished the mission and a couple of days later, he just started getting heavier and heavier in his legs until finally he couldn't even move his legs. Um, so he, he did call for the medevac, medevaced himself out. And when they got him into Bagram, they did an emergency surgery on his spine to decompress it. Um, and when they had him opened up, they saw little tumors around his spine, down his rib. So many, many miracles happened to get him through, uh, through Germany and onto Walter Reed within just a couple of days. A lot of times they're in Germany for a few days before they can get a, you know, hop a ride out to the States, but he was really lucky. He was only there a few hours before he got sent to the U.S. So once he was at Walter Reed, they did lots of testing and all those tests came back as a rare form of cancer, bone cancer, which is typically a pediatric cancer, um, typically happens to kids, not, I mean, he's, he's an adult at 20, 21. He was actually 23. So you know, he's like, okay, well, let's get this thing knocked out because I got guys back in Afghanistan that need me. And the doctors are telling him, well, probably not going to happen on this deployment because you're, you know, the, the uh, protocol for this kind of cancer is a year of chemo and three to four months of radiation on top of each other. So that was really tough for him, you know, that he, he realized I'm not going back to my guys. Um, so he, but he fought it. He fought it. He fought it. He fought it. He couldn't walk. He was still, um, there was no feeling from about his chest down. He couldn't really feel anything, but he was just too determined to walk. So even though he couldn't feel where his legs were in space, he just still, you know, threw those legs around and he used a cane or he used, um, he hated the wheelchair. Sometimes he would use it, but mostly he just used his cane. And um, we spent probably 85% of our days in the hospital for that. We They put us up in the Wounded Warrior housing. It's called Building 62. They're on Walter Reed. Uh, Walter Reed is at the, as the, the naval base when they were um, combining bases a few years ago. Walter Reed out of D.C., was put onto the naval base and it became an army and an air force or navy base. So um, yeah, that's where we stayed in the wounded warrior housing and we were there for 14 months. Um, we thought his chemo was gone at about a year. They thought it was gone and he was so excited to be done with that part of it. 
and ready to move on to a different hospital to start working on the spinal rehab, see if he could get any kind of good motion back in his legs, which it, I mean, we were trying to be hopeful, right, that he would. But about 62 days, 42 days into it, I can't remember the exact number of days his cancer came back. Um, the pain was just so bad. We took him in and took him into the emergency room and, and um, yeah, it had just come back with a vengeance. And so we asked him what to do, you know, what do you want to do? The doctors were so good. And he just said to me, mom, do I want to go through this again? You know, he just went through 14 months. It was horrible. It was, it was horrible to watch your strong, strong um, kid whittle down to nothing in weight and be so sick, so, so sick. Um, what do I do? I just, you just get done with this horrible experience and you want to do it again. What are the chances of survival? They weren't great. But I don't have, I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I just have my siblings. Mom, what do I do? And how do I tell him, you know, I want you to do this, but at the same time, you don't want him to go through all that again. So he always was the kind of kid that liked to get all the information and then make the decision on his own. And so he decided he would do that second line of chemo. But first they were going to have to go in and get as much of the cancer out of his body as they could. And that was going to require an intense surgery. Um, they were going to have to take out his fifth rib. Um, the cancer was going into his lung. Anyway, it was just, it was horrible. It was bad. Um, but the thing that was the hardest of all of that, I think for him was the radiation because of where they had to um, radiate right on his esophagus, right above um, like his nipple line. Um, it started creating strictures in his esophagus so he couldn't swallow. And he probably did 40 procedures to go through and stretch that esophagus back out because it would just close right down. And that was not only painful, but he couldn't eat. And this kid, this kid loved to eat. <laughs> that was just really, that was the struggle, really. And that was one of the things that kept him in the hospital the most is, is keeping that esophagus open and keeping him fed, you know, nutrition and pain. So bone pain, nerve pain, and that esophagus pain was was what uh, was such a struggle for him. And then also the, the PTSD, right? He just came from a very hot combat zone. And here he he's in a bed where he can't just hop up and take cover. He's surrounded by um, doctors all the time. It's a teaching hospital. So they come in with no less than five doctors at a time, surround your bed, ask you all the questions. It's a very vulnerable position for anybody, not to mention a soldier who's just come out of a, a combat zone. And then to not be able to walk. You know, we would walk around with his cane. Um, he felt very vulnerable in how could he protect others when all he had was this cane. And if he didn't have the cane on the ground, he would fall, which he did a lot of times, but he didn't, he didn't care. It didn't stop him from trying. Um, in fact, this is a funny story. In our little tiny apartment at the Wounded Warrior Housing, we had two separate bedrooms and then a little living room in between. Both bedrooms had little bathroom and shower. So one morning I hear this huge crash. He had gone in there to take a shower um, and I heard this crash. So I go running 
walking in there. I'm like, Landon, are you okay? And he's like, he's laughing. He's laughing. I'm like, what is, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I just thought I'd try and see if I could hop. <laughs> like hop. He wanted to hop. Yeah. It's like, I wanted to just see if I could hop. <laughs> he said, but what I really did is I just broke out my chicklets. <laughs> so yeah, he had a really wicked sense of humor. He loved the shock value and um, that sense of humor, but he, uh, he took all of that with so much courage, so much courage. And he, he made so many friends, obviously at Walter Reed, the senators will come in and the congressmen will come in and the president will come in and shut the whole hospital down for his little visit. And, uh, there's so many stories to tell about when Barack Obama came to visit, but that might be for another day. <laughs> so you know, he, he needed to get out a lot. He needed to get out of those four walls, I think due to his PTSD, due to his just trying to process this diagnosis and what his life is going to look like now. And the nurses didn't really want him to go off the floor because he had this huge, you know, this, he called it a stripper pole, but it's, <laughs> it's the IV pole. So he's hooked up to the IV and he's got tons of different medications. He's got a pain pump and he, they don't want him going off the floor, but they're so good to realize he needed to get out. So he told them, I have to go on a peacekeeping mission. And that meant if you don't let me out of here on this peacekeeping mission, there's not going to be any peace on this floor. <laughs> <laughs> so that became his thing. You know, um, I need to go on a peacekeeping mission. And so we did a lot of those and they would let him go down the hall. Once you got downstairs on the main floor, down the hall to the parking garage. And then we would go up to the roof of the parking garage. And we spent a lot of time up there, a lot of time up there. It didn't matter if it was freezing cold, windy, snowy, raining, sleet, or hot, hot, hot. We spent a lot of time up there. And I will never, ever, ever be sad that I got to spend those last months with him and our family. Um, from time to time, the kids would get to come out and visit him and the nephews and nieces would get to come out and visit him. So when we learned that the cancer had come back and he had had his surgery, they were doing the final round of chemo, we started having people come out friends, family, his deployment had ended um, a few months before. So we had some of his buddies come out and visit him, which was such a great distraction, you know, to have those guys come out and you're not just hanging out with your old mother the whole time. It was such a great distraction to have his friends come and encourage him and tell him what they'd say, you're such a badass and you're all these things that would just build him up, you know, and make him feel like he could go another day. And, um, so that was really an incredible time to have those friends and family coming out. And um, then it was in about November-ish, the first part of November that they did his scan after that second line of chemo and they, you know, they just did not have good news. You know, the, the tumor had even grown, even though um, he was on chemo, the tumor was growing. It was everywhere um, in his lungs and all kinds of things. So. That day was rough and um, 
he was really uh he was really quiet that day as you can imagine and he wanted to spend some time alone with his dad and he wanted to spend some time alone with me actually he wanted time alone with each one of his siblings and he wanted to spend some time alone with his doctors and we always told him you know if we're in the room listening to the doctors and if you want privacy you don't feel one second bad about asking us to leave we told him that from the very beginning and he was very good about um when he needed a moment along with the doctors for whatever he needed to ask them about he would just say okay i just need a minute and we were so fine and happy to give him that time that he needed and um we just decided that we were going to take family pictures we were trying to get his pit bull, his beloved pit bull, out to Walter Reed to see him. And of course, the doctors can't tell you the day and time. I remember one doctor saying, I told her we have family pictures scheduled for next Saturday. And I said, do you think we have enough time? And she said, well, I can't tell you and all the things the doctors say. You know, we really don't know. But why wait? She said, why wait? So we bumped up family pictures and we got as many friends and family and, and soldier friends that we could in. And uh, we did some important, important work on those days. Um, and then one day he couldn't eat again. He needed to have another um, procedure on his esophagus. And the doctors are saying, I don't know. You know, this is, you're so sick. We just don't know if you can handle this procedure. He told him all the risks and he said, I'll take the risks. I just want to eat. You know, he'd been living on ice cream, you know, protein shakes and things that would go down easy. So they said, yeah, okay, um, we'll take you down. And so they had to do it in a surgical room. They weren't just going to do it in a procedure room as they had done before. They did it in an actual operating room. So that morning, um, all my kids got a chance to go visit a congressman somewhere. I don't even remember what they were doing. But Don and I were in the waiting room with one of the little babies, one of our grandbabies, so the moms, the mom could go. And, and he got, he'd gone into the procedure. And a little bit later, the, the doctor came out and said to me that he had gone into cardiac arrest. And I said, I'm going in. And she knew I was because I went in everywhere with him, know how, where it hurt and where to touch him and how to help him get on a bed or these kinds of things. I just went everywhere with him. So she went and asked and they said, yeah, she can come in, but she's got to stand back in the back with you. And uh, so I went in and it's just what you would see, you know, on TV. There's your kid. Well, your kid, you don't see that on TV, but probably 20 or 25 doctors around him. Um, and obviously very panicked in an emergency mode. And um, that's when he went into the coma and he didn't really come out of his coma. Um, I wasn't going to cry, Tina. They uh, rushed him off to um, a room where they could try and get some IVs into him. His, his veins were shutting down and they wouldn't let me go in that room with him. So I'm a pacer, right? I'm pacing the floor. And um, his squad leader um, from that wire transition unit was so good. And he came 
up to me and he said, what can I do? And I said, well, they won't let me in the room, so I'm just going to walk. And he said, okay, I'll walk with you. And we went back and forth. He just went back and forth and back and forth with me uh, up and down that hallway. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't say anything. And that's all I needed was to have him walk back and forth with me. Um, he loved that kid. Oh, so many people loved that kid. He had uplifted so many other cancer patients who were in there, pulled out of submarines with their cancer, pulled out of their combat zone with cancer, retirees with their combat and their deployment still fresh in their minds and hearts. And he uplifted all of them and those senators and congressmen and even General Jeffrey Talley, who was the chief and general of the Army Reserve at Landon's time, became great friends with Landon. He visited him often, he called him often, and uh, General Talley's wife, Linda, would come and visit him often, and they would just chat, and he loved her, and she loved him. And um, we needed to get one son um, out from North Dakota. Um, Landon was on a ventilator, and they they told me, we'll try and take him off the ventilator in the morning, and if he can do it within, if he can breathe on his own, then we'll feel pretty good about him, you know, being able to, to wake up. So the next morning, while we're waiting for my youngest son, Hayden's flight to get in, and they took him off the ventilator, and he, um, you know, he's there. I could see that he was in there. And his eyes were determined. They, I saw his eyes determined so many times over those 14 months. Determination like you wouldn't believe. And uh, right when they did that, we had some visitors come. Some of his friends um, from that had been fighting cancer as well, they came and they were in the hallway. So I stepped out for a moment to visit with them and um, realized it had been quite a while, about three hours in fact. So I went back in the room and I took one look at Wendon and his eyes were telling me, mom, I need pain medicine. Because when they take you off the ventilator, they can't give you, they have to cut down your pain medicine. And those eyes were saying, mom, I need, I need some medicine. And um, so I told the docs, it's enough. And they put him back on the ventilator. So he, he had a chance to have all of people come in and visit him. He had one of his very favorite um, sergeant, staff sergeants, not a staff sergeant, what was she? First sergeant. She was his first sergeant had come out to visit him. And she got there a little bit too late. He was already in a coma by the time she got her flight out. But he had several of his, um, he had a squad leader and he had many of his doctors. I don't even remember all of their ranks, but when you're in the warrior transition unit, it's like you're in a unit. You have a squad leader. You have to check in. You have to do all the things you would do as if you were still in the Army. You're still deployed, right? You're still active duty. It's just that your mission now is recovering from whatever reason you're there. So many, many of his um, um, military leadership were there. My son got there. We were all there. Um, 
our our belief is that you our religious belief is that when it's time for the body to let go of the spirit you can have a special blessing given and um, it helps the body and the spirit relax and realize that it's time and so my husband did that and we were all there and um everyone that i knew landon loved and respected we allowed to be in the room and i'll be darned if that kid just didn't go the doctor said it could be once we take him off the ventilator and turn the machines off he'll try and breathe on his own and we don't know how long you know we just can't tell you but it will probably be a short amount of time so this was 10 o'clock in the morning and at 10 o'clock that night everyone's still standing there talking to him and and reminding him of the funny memories and um General Talley and uh, General Talley's chaplain came in. And uh, General Talley was supposed to be on his way out of the country, but he had them change his flights because he needed to come and say goodbye to Landon. He cared that much about him. And his chaplain gave him a wonderful prayer. And Landon loved crosses. He always wore a cross. And that chaplain gave him a beautiful cross and just pinned it right onto the sheet that was covering him. Still, that kid's hanging on, you know? And um, we had a lot of friends saying, you know, Janet, Dawn, why don't you guys rest? And we'll tell you if anything changes in the night, we'll make sure you're all here. They brought me a cot into the room. So sweet. Um, the next morning at dawn, He's still breathing. And uh, I walk over to his window. And I watch them put the flag up on the base and play that bugle. And it's a beautiful sight to see soldiers and even some civilians alike stop wherever they're going. It's up in that bugle place and stand at attention. So beautiful. We watched that, and I was getting really concerned that um, this isn't what Landon would want, to be hanging on and hanging on. And his uh, first sergeant came in, and, and she was someone that he respected immensely, and he also loved her. And I was expressing to her my concerns, and she just gave me a hug, and then as we were all standing around, she walked over to Landon's bed, and she said, Soldier, stand down. I've got your watch. And within minutes, he left us. So, you know, you hear people say, so-and-so lost their battle to cancer. So-and-so lost their battle to cancer. And I don't believe Landon lost his battle to cancer. He was commanded by his first sergeant to move on to his next mission. He was done with this one. So um, that's just what my mama heart likes to think because I don't like to think that you lose anything. You don't lose. 
and I don't believe he lost that battle. He was just relieved from that mission and sent him to another one. So, um, so many precious and tender mercies that happened to us, so many miracles along the way over those months. Um, they um, immediately put the Walter Reed flag down to half-mast and then um, delivered that flag to our room for us. And, um, and then, you know, you just go through the normal things, trying to prepare for what comes next. You know, they had a unit memorial there at uh, Walter Reed in the beautiful chapel. And um, there was only standing room. They had, it. I want to say the number eight, that they had eight deaths from cancer that week. So they were very busy with these memorial services. But Landon's was full and um, so many people, civilians that he had made friends with. Um, people that we had made friends with that had come along like angels in our lives were there as long as well as all the military personnel that he had touched. And um, so it was full of military and it was full of doctors and it was full of civilians and it was beautiful. Then we got him home. We finally got him home to uh, Utah and they had the dignified transfer. We met him in the, the airport hangar. Um, they brought him in, and and then we buried him on a very cold, 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 snowy, freezing cold uh, day in Alpine. And he told me he wanted to be buried where it was free, which would be Bluffdale at the Veterans Cemetery. He knew it was free. And for a kid who had money and loved money, he <laughs> was a cheapskate, right? That's probably so why he had we, money. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, we all knew that that's what he wanted, but we felt like his his siblings and his dad and I, we wanted him where we, where we raised him, in Alpine. And uh, so that's where we found a, a beautiful place, very quiet place by quiet trees that looked up over the mountains that he hiked from the time he was four years old. He hiked those mountains and loved those mountains. All the kids did. All of our kids loved them. And uh, so, yeah, he, he left us in that way. And because he was an active duty service member at the time of his death, that made us um, a next of kin family member. I know there's a lot of definitions of gold star families. Um, some definitions say you're a gold star only if your person was killed in action. Some say you're only a gold star family if your person is killed overseas or dies overseas. But for us here in Utah, especially with my position with survivor outreach, we just want families to feel like if, you're, if your loved one dies while they're serving, they, are, they deserve to be recognized and have the same kind of honor and love um, shown to them that may be someone who sacrificed their life directly with the enemy. And it doesn't matter to us the manner of death. You know, years ago, our, our casualties were um, combat-related or out of, the, out of the country related. And the scale now 
has dropped tremendously in that way. And the scale is completely weighed down with suicides and illness. They're taking over and it's a tragedy. It's just a tragedy that we have so many currently serving, whether they're reservists, whether they're active duty full time, and it doesn't matter the branch. They're taking their lives. And um, we have to find a way to figure this out and, um, and stop it. And I don't know if that problem will ever be solved. I don't know. But what I know is that we can't stop trying. We can't think that someone's okay because they say they're okay and um, let it leave our mind because they said they're okay and they're acting okay. Because what I've noticed in just this 18 months as survivor outreach is that almost every one of them are okay. It's a surprise. The families are totally taken off guard. With self-inflicted deaths comes a whole different kind of um, grief because there's that guilt factor that plays in. Why didn't I see it? Why didn't I notice it? I'm not a good person because I didn't notice it. But I do want to share this that one widow told me, a young widow with four little babies. She said when she was preparing for her husband's funeral, they were going through photos so they could make a photo video to play at the funeral. And she said she noticed in the photos as she was going through the years that his facial expressions were changing as the years went by into not a carefree um, light in your eye photo. And she said it was striking to her that it's not something she noticed day to day, but that it pulled up his picture, she noticed it. And I don't know what the answer is to, to see that change in our loved ones. If, if we can see it, can we see it or are they too good at hiding it? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a universal question. And I know that there's a lot of people really working on it, really working on it. Um, but we have to remove the stigma, not only for the, the ones that these soldiers leave behind, the families, but we have to remove the stigma to the soldiers who are continuing on in their mission. They've got to feel like they can get help. They're not less of a person. They're more courageous to reach out. You know, you're more courageous, more brave to reach out and get help because you're not just helping yourself, you're helping everyone that's associated with you. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I've been in this past year. I can yes. ask you a few questions, um, three of them. First of all, what was the date that Lyndon died? How is Cody doing today with he with his PTS? And can you explain a little bit more about this program and how people can contact the program? Yes, um, Landon died on Pearl Harbor Day, December 7th. <laughs> he never wanted to be get attention. He never wanted any attention. So I think he thought that if he died on Pearl Harbor, on, yeah, on Pearl Harbor Day, that all the attention would go to Pearl Harbor rather than him. <laughs> um, and Cody was born on Veterans Day. So, you know, our two soldiers have significant, significant days. 
Cody went through a really rough period, a rough period of um, um, addiction, divorce. Um, he, he was great until sort of everything came back to him having to be back on the base and being around soldiers and all that kind of thing. And you just turn to whatever's easiest to find comfort in. And it wasn't his wife. Unfortunately, she was finding comfort elsewhere. And um, so, yeah, it was rough. But today he's remarried. He's um, in his children's lives. Um, the divorce um, produced 50-50 custody um, after years and years of battling. And he's got a, a wife who loves him, even though he's having nightmares, even though one day he's going to wake up and be totally off and not him for no reason. No good reason. She loves him for all of those things, despite those things even. And um, they have a beautiful baby together to add to his other two beautiful children. And they're having another baby possibly today. <laughs> oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. He He's doing tremendous. He's doing tremendous. He, he loves to help veterans he loves to take them out fishing he's done a few things for casting for kids where they take kids with disabilities out and help them fish that's where he found his solace after he recovered he found his solace in fishing and he's good at it he's super good at it and he loves to teach people about it so he's great he's doing amazing but i still watch those eyes you know i still watch his eyes and I still try and keep my spidey feelies, you know, open because you never know. The program is called Survivor Outreach Services, and I'm contracted with the Utah National Guard to reach out to families who've lost a service member. So once their casualty assistance officer has notified the family and have helped them through the funeral, um, those first stages of, of their loss, um, our program steps in for the long term. So we can help them with uh, grief counseling, resources for financial counseling. Um, if they have benefit questions down the line, if it's a widow who has gotten um, benefits for education for children down the line, um, we can help them get those kids where they need to be, get their scholarships and their benefits for education. And then the other thing that we do is we provide events for the families. We really feel like it's important for this um, families of the fallen community to have a community where they can come together. If they want to share stories, share stories, but sometimes just knowing that the person that you're having this activity with has gone through a similar experience, they've lost a loved one, you walk away feeling more lighthearted, you know, more like I can, I can get through this loss. You certainly don't get over it. You just have to get through it. And the thing that I'm learning now is that I have to figure out who I'm going to be now because I've been waiting for all of these years to be the person I was before <laughs> all of this happened. Um, and I just have to realize that person is not, that person's just not going to come back. you got to figure out who you are now, um, what you're going to do now, what your dreams are, and don't grieve over the person who you used to be so 
it never really ends. You know, you just have to keep moving through. And I felt like giving back in some way would help me do that. And that's why this program has helped me because I feel like I'm, I'm trying to help others. I'm my, my headquarter or I, my office is in Draper at the headquarters. That's where my office is. But like I said earlier, I'm not in that office a lot because I'm out visiting families or we're out preparing events or meeting with community partners. So my cell phone is my office basically. So my cell phone, and then obviously I have the office phone and that's how you just get in touch with me. And then obviously we have our, uh, our emails, but um, I do the Southern half of Utah from about Salt Lake County all the way South is my area. And then there's another um, SOS coordinator who does from about Salt Lake County um, up North. She does the Northern half. So I'm doing quite a bit of stuff in the South to try and reach out, out to those families. What I went, wanted to ask you, Janet, is hindsight is definitely 2020. We can play armchair quarterback. But now with everything that's happened with your boys, how do you feel about the military? And would you have supported it at the t like you did at the time when they wanted to join? Um, I feel like, no, <laughs> and it's just because we've had a lot of really tough experiences. I feel like, I feel like this, these men and women join at such a young age with the promise that if you go out and do this and this and this for us, when you come back, we are going to have your back. We are going to take care of you. And I did not see that. I did not see that at all. And uh, in fact, when my youngest son was ready to join at 17, his brothers both sat him down and said, no, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. And I, I think that that may be one of Hayden's biggest regrets. I don't know that for sure, but I am grateful that he came, that he didn't go because he's the only kid I have with a mind that didn't get messed up by war and then coming home and feeling like, you know, you, you're getting the raw end of the deal, you know, what's happening here. So unless things change um, and veterans are treated differently um, that, I mean, I know they're making changes. I know they're trying. I'm not saying no one's trying. I, I don't know if the cog is so big that you've, it's just going to be too difficult to change. I don't know. But these, these veterans need to come back with, um, they need to come back knowing that we have better, better care for them, better interests. Um, so I guess I would tell people, don't do it. Don't do it. But that's because I watched my boys. Cody changed from a social butterfly to someone who prefers not to be around people too much. And then of course, Landon, um, I don't know if his, his cancer is not on the PACT Act um, that they've passed, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's where his cancer came from. And Hayden's got a good mind. So, and the double-sided double sword about that is that we need these guys to go do it. 
we need these men and women to be strong. We need them to lead the charge and be like my boys were, let me go. And so many other soldiers that I've met and airmen and guardsmen, let me go. Let me protect what we have because we're losing it. We're losing our freedoms day by day. Let me go protect them. And uh, so you want him to go do that. At the same time, it's my mama's heart that says, I don't want you to come back. Not the same. And I just don't feel like they do. I think it's a crime. I believe that Congress should be getting the care that our veterans do and our veterans should be getting the health care that Congress does. It makes me so angry that our veterans, they are the first men and women that should be getting the best possible care in this country. And I think it has a lot to do with greed and selfishness. I agree. I'm totally on the same page with you there. In fact, we met with so many congressmen, congressmen and, and women while we were back at Welch to read and they would just, you know, they would waltz in with their posse, like about five different people with their notes and all that, you know, all the stuff and make their little speech. And, um, and I would think you can't ask those questions without going overseas and sleeping under a truck with firefight, fire, fire going over your head and not having eaten in days and not having taken a bath in days, or, you know, you've got one bottle of water left and you don't know where your next one's coming from. You can't ask those kinds of questions until you've done that. And then you can ask the questions with sincerity and expect to get a sincere and honest answer back. Because so many times I think these guys ask these veterans these questions, not thinking that they can really do anything. They're just, I'm not sure why they're asking them. So I think the guy that's being asked the question is not going to give the honest answer because why, you know, why? So, um, yeah, my mama's heart says a lot of different things than my American heart, even though they're the same one. I hear you. I have an 18 year old boy and it would petrify me to think about him joining the military. <laughs> and that's awful because I'm patriotic and I love this country, but yeah. it freaks me yeah. out. <laughs> Totally. I want you yeah. to tell yeah, us about your little, I shouldn't say little, it's pretty big, mobile that you take with you. Talk about Landon. You have a big, you have, it's so cool big what truck. you do, what you bring to these events. Can you tell the listeners about that? So Landon was an adrenaline junkie right he loved it he loved any kind of toy he loved any kind of truck um so he the thing he did while he was deployed and while he was in the hospital is he would go through um like classifieds and magazines to try and find the coolest toys he could find and then we'd put them up on his wall that would be like his you know the dream wall i'm going to get better so i can go do these things or i'm going to get done with this mission so i can go home and have this toy so um he had found this truck. I don't even know what it is. It's a big black truck. It's a Chevy um, Silverado. I know because I insure it. <laughs> so I know that much. Um, and he had, he got this truck. It's the one he wanted. He wanted to deck it out with the big tires, the winch, so he could pull people that, you know, rolled down a mountain or pull them out of a snow drift or all the things that guys want on their truck. That's what he wanted. 
unfortunately, he didn't have the time to get all that done. Um, so <clears throat> we had the truck. We got it back east while we were still back there. And, you know, we all grieved differently. And honestly, my grief at that time was I didn't want to see the truck. I didn't want to look at it. I didn't want anything to do with it. Don's grief was, I'm going to take this truck landed, my dear son, and I'm going to make it into what you wanted it to be. And then I'm going to use it to help other service members and other veterans realize how grateful we are to them for continuing the mission. And for those who we've lost, say thank you. And uh, so that was what Don's labor of love was. And he has gone around getting sponsors to help him put these different things on. Wonderful sponsors. He's got a whole poster of people who've um, sponsored different pieces and parts to that truck. And it's wonderful. It's got all the things on it that Landon would love. And we like to take it to the events because, like I said, the reason it was built was to say, Thank you for those of you who are continuing the mission that our sons can no longer continue. And thank you to those of you who have sacrificed and have moved on. And uh, really that's what it is, is just a great big thank you. So we love taking it. Um, Landon had a Harley Davidson motorcycle that, you know, that kid rode that motorcycle without any feeling in his legs. <laughs> that's scary. It's, it's pretty scary. Like I said, we had a lot of miracles. That was one of them. But um, Don is working on a trailer right now. He's building a little trailer to put that bike in to pull the bike behind it. So he'll have Lennon's Harley and he'll have the big truck. And um, obviously we put a picture of Landon on there because he's our, our fallen. But the truck is to represent all of the fallen and all of those continuing to serve to show our appreciation and gratitude to them. Don also built an honor cross with all of Landon's gear. I think it's sometimes called a field cross too. Do you know what I mean? With the mm -hmm. rifle and, and I've seen it. Yep. So um, Don was able to acquire a lot of Landon's gear um, and then duplicate some that he had used. And Don's the one to really ask about all that stuff because to me, it's just a knife and a rifle and a scope, but they have really cool names for them if you're asking the guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that also was a labor of love. You know, that was, that was how Don expressed his grief um, for months and years to get these things put together. Um, to honor Landon. And he's got it to a point now where he can put that honor cross in the back of the truck and um, display it with the truck. It's really cool to see. So that's that. It's, yeah, it is an awesome thing to see. And, and like I said, we like it because it's our way to say thank you. Because how do we, how do we say thank you to people? We don't see them on a big enough scale. We don't have a platform like a congressman or a mayor or someone. We don't have that platform. So the only way we can, we feel like we can do it is by attending some events, saying thank you, putting an arm around someone and expressing our gratitude for them when we can. And um, hopefully that will, that patriotic vein will continue to run in our grandkids and our great grandkids and, and um, 
and continue on that patriotic legacy because we do love our country. Well, I think this is fitting for my last question then, Janet. What does America mean to you? Well, to me, America means getting up this morning and turning on hot water for my shower. It means jumping in my car and running over to fill it up with fuel. Um, it means going to church, um, whichever church I want to go to on Sundays or Saturdays. It means um, sending my kids to school. Well, now I don't know about this. Uh, sending my kids to school without someone guarding the doors because uh, that just happened to one of my grandchildren's schools. I guess knowing that I can go wherever I want to go and do what I need to do without feeling like I need someone to be protecting me with a gun. Like in so many countries, you don't feel safe unless someone's with you with a gun. Even humanitarian missions who go to different countries have to have guides with them who carry weapons to protect them. We want to do these humanitarian missions. We want to help because that's the nature of our American character is to give and to help. And we can still do it without the need of having a soldier or someone protect us. I didn't need someone to go protect me down to get the gas at the gas station. I don't need anyone to protect me when I go to ch church. And our country has taken a little bit of a turn um, in, my, in my opinion, but I still love it like you love a child. You love it for all the goodness that they have and all the potential that they have and all the joy that it can bring you. You just might be a little pissed off at them when they make bad choices, <laughs> right? You might be a little mad because they, they're doing some things that you don't agree with, but you still have to love them because they're your child. And I guess that's how I feel about America. Um, you've got to love all the good. You've got to keep putting all that good out there, spreading America's light and trying to use that light to distinguish the dark. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Thanks, Tina. Appreciate you having me today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 